Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He suffered for our salvation. He descended into hell. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. one Lord, Jesus Christ. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. take your seats good morning to you welcome to central my name's uh, Craig and I have the privilege of uh, addressing you uh, this morning and and what we've just experienced is the ancient creeds being brought to life before our very eyes what we've experienced here is the uniformed consistency and the teaching of the early church about what Jesus did. And it's incredibly uniform, isn't it? You can see it. But as you look on that, do you notice something missing? Look at it closely. What's not there? To help you see that, I want to maybe put it differently in the form of a timeline. The ancient creeds tell us that the eternal Son left the glory of heaven, took on flesh, and was born as one of us. They go on to tell us that He died on the cross, suffered in our place, was buried before rising again on that third day. And then they tell us that he appeared to his 
disciples before ascending to the Father, where he entered the glory of heaven to reign supremely on high, where he now exists and functions to intercede for you and for me. This is what they tell us. But do you notice what's missing? Do you notice what's not there? Do you notice the gap in the presentation of Jesus? What we read here is truly who Jesus is, but there's so much more. Do you see what's missing? What's missing is his life. What's missing is his life. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And each one of these creeds, while doctrinally correct, has something missing. They have missed the life of Jesus. The creeds emphasize, you see, the bookends of the life of Jesus. They celebrate his incarnation, his birth. They rejoice over the the Christ event. They introduce us to the events that are yet to come, but at what cost? It's at the cost of missing the middle. Now, I know we're in Reformed heartland. I know many of you kind of grew up reciting these creeds as catechisms in school, and you're probably thinking, Craig, are you saying that these creeds are wrong? No, that's not what I'm saying. The creeds are not wrong. (sighs) Breathe easy. They're not wrong. But the usefulness of the creeds is limited to the context for which they were intended to be used. You see, the creeds were written in periods of Christian history where crackpot theories were being presented about Jesus, about who he is, what he did. And so these creeds were written to guide the conversation, to frame the discussion. So the Apostles' Creed that was read for us in the beginning was drawn from writings like Irenaeus of Lyon, who who basically wrote books around 170 AD that kind of summarized his life teaching. And Irenaeus pointed out that Marcion, who was excommunicated from the church in 144, was actually wrong in saying that there are actually two gods in the Bible, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. No, the Apostles' Creed says, Marcion, you are wrong. There are not two gods. There are one. There is one God. There is one Lord. And and then we get to AD 325, June 325, the Nicene Creed, about 30 miles outside of Istanbul in Turkey. A group of church leaders got together and, and put together the Nicene Creed, and they said, Arius, you are wrong. Jesus is not some kind of specially created being. He is actually of one substance with the Father. Did you know that the heresy of Arius is the foundation for the doctrine of the the Jehovah's Witnesses today? They were wrong in 325. They're wrong today. You see, these creeds were written to give a context for the discussion about Jesus. And we have to remember that these these early fathers who put together these creeds were far closer 
to the life of Jesus than are we. And unfortunately, the further the church has traveled away from the life of Jesus, the more distant Jesus' life and the, more, and the less relevant his teaching has become. And we believe at great cost, because today Jesus is almost exclusively preached as the Savior of our souls and rarely as the ruler of life and as the ruler of all life. And church, in a day when life is disposable, it is cheap, it can be killed at an easy decision. It's a commodity that can be bought and sold. Surely it's time for the church to proclaim life matters. And do you know why life matters? Life matters because Jesus' life matters. All life matters because his life matters. And church, if all Jesus did was to come to be born in order to die, then quite simply what matters to us all is what? What happens when we die? That's been the Christian gospel, hasn't it? Christian message for the last 30 or 40 years. If you die tonight, we ask, are you certain? Do you know for certain that you will spend an eternity with the Father in heaven? How many of you, like me, have been to revival meetings, crusades, although as a European, we can't say the word crusades because that's a bad part of our history. Whatever you want to call it, you go, you go to a meeting and you hear an evangelist, a pastor at the front, saying this thing, if you die tonight, if you don't trust Jesus tonight, you may leave this place and you may be run down by a truck. At the end of the meeting, you watch as a, a few people come to the front and give their lives to Jesus. But you notice on your way home that everybody is very careful when they cross the road. The message of Christianity is about far more than what happens to us when we die. But unfortunately, if our understanding of our Christian faith is simply the creeds, the bookends of life, then what is important is simply the bookends of life. That's our faith. But it's far more than that. Life matters. All life matters because Jesus' life matters. The creeds speak of his suffering death and his glorious ascension, but the gospels focus on his life. Not sure? Well, think of it this way. In Matthew's gospel, for example, we have 25 chapters on his life, three on his death and resurrection. In Mark's gospel, we have 13 chapters on his life, three chapters on his death and resurrection. In Luke's gospel, we have 21 chapters on his life and three chapters on his death and resurrection. In John's gospel, we have 17 chapters on his life and four on his death and resurrection. So in total, we have 76 chapters on the life of Jesus in the Gospels and 13 chapters on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, 17% of the Gospels focus on the crucifixion, the burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, and yet 83% focus on the life that Jesus lived. 
100% of the Cretes concentrate on the bookends of Jesus' life, and they say practically nothing about His life itself. Again, it's not wrong. The context is different. But it should lead us to ask this question. Do I believe in someone who saves my soul rather than someone who rules my life? You see, the presentation of this Jesus in the Gospels is someone who is the ruler of all life. Have we relegated our Christian gospel to someone who simply saves our soul but doesn't rule our lives? You see, because Jesus lived with purpose, we say with confidence that life is not a transaction, a ticket to a heavenly amusement park. No, we say the reason for our life is not to offer people a ticket to a heavenly a park when they die, but rather to usher in the reign and the rule of God while we live. While we live. Here at Central, we have a hunch. If we rethink Jesus' life, maybe, just maybe, we may have a better understanding of our own. You see, for 2,000 years, we've preached Jesus, but we have not fully preached His message if we do not understand the significance of His life. If Jesus' only purpose were to come and die, He wouldn't have had to have lived the way that He lived. He wouldn't have had to enter the rabbinic system in the way that He did. He wouldn't have had to do so many of the things He did, but He did all of these and so much more, and we know about it because His life matters. And we say it again, because Jesus' life matters, our lives matter. And we have a hunch. If we spend some time rethinking Jesus' life, maybe, just maybe, we may have a better understanding of our own. Look at this statement. What the Cretes overlooked, many Christians ignore must return to the fore. Ask a Christian who's been to church maybe, say, for five years, six years, seven years, tell me, why did Jesus die? And you know what? You get a pretty sound biblical answer to that question. Ask the same Christians, however, why did Jesus live? And the clarity wouldn't be so consistent. Some of you may wonder, Craig, what, what difference does all of this make? What difference does it make for me to understand why Jesus lived? We think it makes the world of difference. Let me explain it this way. In 1485, you see a copy of that there, there was the first cookbook that was published on the famous Gutenberg Press. It was called Küchenmeisterei. I can say that word, it's cool because I can speak German. It just basically means mastery of the kitchen. And in this cookbook that was printed, the first cookbook ever printed on this press, uh, what was printed was a number of famous and we would say infamous recipes. One of those recipes was for the good old Berliner, for the jelly-filled donut. 
Now, as a, a European here, uh, I always think of this, and I think of President Kennedy, some of you have heard this, he stands up in Berlin, famous moment where he says, Ich bin ein Berliner. What he should have said was, Ich bin Berliner, you don't say ein. When you say ein Berliner, you basically call yourself a jelly donut. <laughs> Nobody can understand why, from the American contingent, why the German crowd were laughing. But this Berliner, you see, has been around for 500, uh, for 500 years, this recipe. What was interesting is this recipe was made back in 1485. They say you took two pieces of bread, you smear it with lard, you get the jelly, you put it in the middle, you drop it into a, like a deep fat fryer, okay, you fry it, and then you get your little jelly donut. It was actually more like a sandwich. So this was published in 1485. The problem was that sugar and jelly was too expensive. So what do you think happens when the centerpiece is inaccessible? What do you think happened when the core was unattainable? Well, the, the middle needed to be filled, and if you don't have access to what should be in the middle, you fill it with all kinds of stuff that really may look good, may taste good, but really haven't got any right to be in the middle. So the German population for 120 years actually filled the center of this Berliner, get this, not with custard and cream, because sugar was too expensive. They actually filled it with cheese. Can you believe that? Meat, all of this savory kind of stuff. And it wasn't until 125 years later when sugar got a lot cheaper that the core returned to the fore. The donut the Berliner actually was used for what it was intended to do. Now, some of you are thinking, Craig, what on earth is the point of that? <laughs> well, again, the point when the centerpiece is inaccessible, it's unknown, it's unattainable, anything fills it. See, the center needs to be filled. And if you create a vacuum and open the vacuum, something will fill it. It's the same with the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus has a core. There is a core element to this. And if you sandwich the core, but you don't teach the core, what do you think will happen? Anything will actually fill it. And what should have been communicated over the last 30 or 40 years hasn't been communicated and because the truth, the center, has been inaccessible. It hasn't been taught. And so, consequently, the missing middle of Jesus' life, okay, causes us to explain the life of Jesus in ways like this. Jesus' life teaches people how to go to heaven. Now, is that true? Yeah, of course it's true. You want to know how to have a relationship with the Father that will continue on beyond your physical death? Then just go look at what Jesus said. It's true. Is this the centerpiece? No. Then we have this. Jesus' life teaches people how to behave, the whole idea of ethics. Is this true? Yes, it is true. Read Matthew chapter 5 verse, uh, through Matthew chapter 8. The Sermon on the Mount, descriptive of the type of life people who believe in God should live. So is this true? Absolutely right. But is this the centerpiece of Jesus' life? Absolutely not. Thirdly, Jesus' perfect life enabled his perfect sacrifice. Is this true? Absolutely right. Of course it's true. Hebrews 4.16. Jesus was suffered and tempted in every way. We are yet without sin. Perfect sinless 
Ness enabled perfect sacrifice. Of course it's true. Is this the center of the life of Jesus? No, there's so much more than this. Fourthly, Jesus' life showed that he was God. Oh, this is so wrong. You heard me say that a number of weeks ago over Labor Day weekend, the kind of launch pad for our Centralist series, the Son of God did not take on flesh in order to act like God. The Son of God took on flesh to be led by the Spirit of God to show the sons and daughters of God how we should act, but because of the controlling power of sin, could not. The point of Jesus' life isn't to show us that He was God, it's to show the sons and daughters of God how life could be lived. But the other three here are pretty accurate. They're pretty true. But what it should lead us to is the realization that there's a missing middle here in our faith, and that missing middle is the life of Jesus. And to make these elements the center of Jesus' life is to muddle the middle. It is to fill the central piece of the Gospels with a narrative that the Gospels don't prioritize. And the result of that has been that over the last 30 and 40 years, we have emphasized the salvation of souls at the cost of presenting Jesus as the ruler and the Lord of lives. We have overinflated salvation prayers and left the importance of Christ's kingly rule off to the side. We overinflate these things because we've underthought. It's time, I think, to rethink the life of Jesus in order for us to make better sense of our own. It's time to rethink. And with that in mind, I want you to look at the very first words of Jesus. These first words of Jesus introduce us to the idea of what the centerpiece truly is. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Over 50 times the Gospel of Matthew uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven. The other Gospels will use a similar phrase, the kingdom of God. Writing overwhelmingly to a Jewish audience, Matthew wouldn't use the word God, he would use the word heaven. But the other Gospels have the same content. We hire Jesus as our Savior, but we fire Him as our teacher and as our Lord and as our King when we refuse to communicate His message of the kingdom. This is the heart of the Gospels. It's the message of the kingdom. You see, the creeds inform us of something important. And it's all based on these ideas. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, again, the first words of Jesus. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The creeds inform us that the incarnation led to the crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension. It's all true. But the Gospels say that the incarnation led us to the introduction of the kingdom of God that necessitated the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. There's a piece missing. The kingdom, the coming of the kingdom necessitated the coming of the Christ to introduce that kingdom that necessitated the death, burial, 
resurrection and ascension of Jesus. You see, in the Gospels, the central idea is that with the coming of Jesus, we witness the coming of the kingdom of God. And that's what we read here in Mark 1.15. Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And so what do we need to do? We need to repent and believe the good news. As soon as Jesus had been anointed for his task as the Christ of God, the Messiah, in the Jordan River, he proclaimed, the time has come for the kingdom. The time has come to change your minds. See, that is what the word repent actually means. It's from the Greek word metanoia. It basically means to change your mind, to change your heart. And this, this change is witnessed as you do an about turn and walk in completely the opposite direction. It's a change of mind. Why does Jesus call people to change their mind when he talks about the kingdom? Well, back then people thought they knew what the kingdom was how the kingdom would function, what it would look like, but they got it wrong. And so Jesus says, hey, you need to change your mind because the reality of this kingdom is going to be far more different, far different to what you possibly imagine, and it's not going to be what you've heard. You see, in Jesus' time, the, the Jews were looking for a messianic king, a political figure to liberate them. But they wanted someone who would liberate them on their basis, on the basis of the policies and the philosophies that they embraced. But Jesus comes along, he says, listen, the only way that you can experience the life that is truly life, the only way that you can experience the life in my kingdom is to repent, to change your mind, to change your heart, and to understand that the kingdom is less about your policies and your priorities than it is my presence. This is the way it begins. Guys, you've got to change your mind here. Because the kingdom isn't about your policies and your priorities. The kingdom is about the presence of the Father revealed to you through me. And much of the New Testament is actually built upon the life of Jesus and how the life of Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. I want you to see one such prophecy, and it's Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10. Look at this. Look at the wording on this. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Do you see this? The kingdom is not about their policies or their priorities. It's actually about God's presence. And here, the prophet Zechariah says that there will come a time when the Lord will be with his people, and the people will know that the Lord Almighty has sent him to them. See, with the Lord's coming, a rule and a reign that affects all people, all nations, is going to be ushered in. And so the kingdom draws attention to a person, Jesus. And through this person, Jesus, 
a dynamic, a supernatural, a redemptive, salvific power is introduced. It is unveiled that sets all people free from the controlling power of sin and invites them into a movement to establish God's rule and God's reign where? On earth, as it is in heaven. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray. When you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven. And then what is it? What is it after that? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. When? When I get to heaven? No, on earth as it is in heaven. Some of you are listening to this and thinking, Craig, is this such a big deal? So what? I think this is a big deal. And I think there are four tangible implications of this for you and for me. The first one is simply this. It's good news to all of us. Because Jesus lived, God rules, peace reigns, and hope exists. That's true. Because Jesus lived, because God broke into our world through Jesus, life isn't hopeless. There is hope. One of the most profound messages we have for a world that is so broken is that there is hope. There is hope now. Not just when we die. There is hope now. There is life now. Through this Jesus, there can be peace now. Secondly, because Jesus lived, God wants us to live too. Life to the full. This life isn't just going to be lived when we get to heaven. This life is to be lived now. Thirdly, if we miss the middle of Jesus' life, we miss the heart of our own. Ask yourself this question. If somebody comes to you and said, okay, I understand what you think about Jesus dying, but can you tell me, please, why Jesus lived? Why did Jesus live the way he did? Why did he say the things he said? Why did he do the things he did? Could you answer that question? We really believe that if we can get to the point of answering this question, we can actually get to the point of understanding the purpose of our own lives. And the reason so many Christians are so bored with their faith is because we don't get this. There's so much more. There's so much more. If we miss the middle of Jesus' life, the heart of it, we miss the heart of our own. Fourthly, Jesus lived for a purpose, and the consequence of this is our life has purpose too. God did not put us in the world simply for us. It's more than about us. It's more even than about us as a church. It is ultimately about God's rule breaking in into this world to manifest itself in this world just as His rule and His reign manifests itself in heaven. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 11, and Ephesians 2, verse 10, you can read those at home, Paul writes that all of us were created for good works. The foundation for that teaching was essentially that we are called to work in such a way that God's rule breaks in, in our world, in our lives. What does it look like in your family right now for God's rule and reign to break in? What does it look like in your school, in your college, in your workplace? What does it look like in your extended family? What does it look like when God's rule breaks in? And church, that's got to be about more than you knowing that your family are going to go to heaven when they die. It's more than that. 
So much more than that. Someone has said this. God intends to put the whole world right. So he puts us right in the present through the good news so we can be part of his putting right project for the world. The person who wrote that, I think, understands the kingdom. God is putting us right in order to use us to set a very broken world right. And I understand so many theories out there about the world getting really bad and then Jesus will come, but guess what? That shouldn't be through a lack of effort on our part. As a people of faith, God calls us to live life with purpose because life matters. All life matters. Life should never be disposable and cheap. It should never be bought and sold. Life needs to be protected. It needs to be affirmed and proclaimed and held in high regard because Jesus lived. Everyone has a right to live. This is the message of the gospel. And our prayer for us as a church is that over the next seven weeks, we will truly understand what this means. Let me just say that this in closing, that Jesus' life had meaning because it had a context. Next week, Pastor Brad is going to use this entire screen, and he's going to take us, and he's going to need it from the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis, all the way to the end. And he's going to show how God was, has always been in control of the world. He's never lost control. And how, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. God's always been in control of time. And he was in control of the time when his son came to live, and in the same way, We'll hear next week and over the next six weeks after today, we'll hear that our life matters. And just like Jesus' life had a grander context, guess what? So too does ours. We have been brought here for such a time as this. God has not lost control of this nation. God has not lost control of this world. He's still in control, and He's still on the throne. And in order for his rule and reign to come on earth as it is in heaven, you and I need to understand what the life of Jesus is about. So we really have three challenges for you through the series. The first challenge is this. As you go from here this week, won't you just spend time thinking about how does Jesus' life affect mine? If you're a Christian, you should know why his death affects yours. But how does his life affect your life? Secondly, we want to challenge you not just to think about how his life affects yours. We want to challenge you to pray. Asking God why he has placed you where he has placed you for such a time as this. Jesus' life matters. He has a context, and God was in control of that context. In the same way, your life matters. God has not lost control of your life, and he's placed you in a context for a reason. Pray, God, why have you placed me where you've placed me? Why have you given me the skills that you've given me? What is all this for? Thirdly, we want to challenge you. Keep coming back. When we said big things were coming on October 4, it was not to do with the screen behind me, believe me. I don't like that screen. It shows my receding hairline right here. 
we really believe that this, this series is going to be foundational for our church. It's going to be foundational for many lives because we need to understand why we live. We need to understand why God has called us to be the church in Holland at this point in time. And it's not about us. There's a context. That context is to usher in the rule and the reign of God on earth just as it is in heaven. And all of that is only possible if we understand the life of God. So please, keep coming back. I realize some of you have got weekends away. The great thing is that with our live stream, you'll still be able to in, engage in worship with us and even interact with us at this point in time. The good news is, even if you can't do that, you can go online. You'll be able to find the, the files a lot easier and more quickly than you do right now. Please engage with us because the life of Jesus matters. And, and if your faith is simply about what happens to you when you die, then you've only understood a fraction of the good news of Jesus. The Bible tells us that the Son of God took on flesh in order to introduce the rule and the reign of God in, on earth that necessitated that Jesus died, was buried, rose, and ascended to the Father so that the Holy Spirit would come down and empower us to live lives that reflect the hands and feet of Jesus to our world. As you go here from here today, just remember that and allow the, the presence of the Holy Spirit to empower you. Join me. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Think of those challenges, especially the first one. Why did Jesus live? How does Jesus' life affect your own? Father, I pray that through this week, as we go about our life, as needs, challenges, issues of injustice, abuse, neglect, all those things that just do not represent your rule and reign on earth, flash before our eyes. I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would remind us of this message. Life matters. Our life matters. And you have placed us in this world to usher in the rule and the reign of God. Father, we know we're not perfect, but we thank you that you use imperfect people. And God, we know that we can't do all things, but you called us to do something. You've called us all to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So Father, through your Holy Spirit, won't you just work on our hearts and even prepare us for next week as Brad just takes us from the beginning of the Scriptures through to the end and reveals the centrality of Christ and the importance of your rule and reign on earth. And God, let us be not just encouraged that you hold the future in your hands, not just excited because hope does exist, peace does reign. But Father, also let us be challenged enough to reorient our lives according to your purpose for it. Father, we do thank you for the encouragement there is in the Scriptures. We thank you that at this very moment, your Son, Jesus Christ, is at your right hand, whispering to you those prayers that are in line with your word and your will. And Father, there is no greater word than this, that we are your children, purchased through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, on that cross, who took our place and paid 
the penalty for our sin. And we thank you that as a result of that, we are covered, we are free, and we are forgiven. And God, I pray that we would walk out of this place today with that good news. In Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. So do join us over the next few weeks. Uh, One final um, big thing uh, before uh, you all leave. You may remember a number of you that on May the 3rd, Sunday, May the 3rd, we said that God was leading us to be a multi-site church of at least six campuses that would extend from Holland to the ends of the earth. I have a great privilege in telling you today that we have our second physical campus, and that is Central La Roca. Many of you know La Roca. If you don't know La Roca and you go out through whatever exit that is down there, D, you'll see a, or hear a lively Spanish congregation that are there. Um, we have been praying with their leadership, and their leadership have been praying with us, and we feel led to merge our congregations together. So Central is now one church meeting in two locations and around the world via internet, um, but we're excited about that. A few years ago, the Holland Sentinel wrote a piece that said the towns and the cities surrounding Holland, uh, those villages surrounding Holland, are becoming less than, their words, not mine, whitely white. The challenge for the church is how do we reflect that? Uh, Take a look around. We're predominantly whitely white. And God has burdened our hearts with this. We need, we, we need to recognize that Jesus brings hope and life to all people. And so we pray, God, how, how do you want us to move forward with this? What do you want us to do? And God led us into this strategic relationship with La Roca. And we're excited about what God's going to do through that congregation and uh, through the leadership of Jose. Uh, you will meet him November the 22nd. We're going to bring him in here for our Water's Edge Sunday, and we're just going to pray for him and commission him. And it's going to be exciting on that day. We will also have another few more exciting exciting announcements for you. But guys, this Water's Edge vision is moving. God is moving us, and God is leading us, and we're excited about that. Now, what I would ask you to do is simply to to pray for Jose, uh, for La Roca. We need to get them into a, a different facility of their own. What does that look like? We're praying for that. We're actively seeking God on it, but we're excited. And I pray that uh, you would just lift them up and us up in prayer as we seek God's will moving forward. So that's a LaRoca, and now maybe you understand why we need to change the branding a little bit because um, it just needs to take account of our multi-site reality. So please uh, pray for them. Uh, Go look on the website and uh, just uh, stay tuned for more updates. Okay, stand with me. I just want to dismiss you with a prayer of blessing. Go from here today knowing that Jesus Christ is the author and the perfecter, not just of our faith, but of faith. Go from here knowing that he died, was buried, rose again, and ascended to the the Father so that the Holy Spirit could be sent on all of you. And with the encouragement that you receive from the Holy Spirit, leave this place, go be the hands and feet of Jesus, and live the life God intended you to live. God bless you all. Thank you for worshiping with us. We'll see you all next week. Have a great week. God bless.